What's up, guys? It's the phenomenal AJ Styles. You're listening to the two-man power trip. Oh, my God. This is Joey Styles, and you're listening to the two-man power trip podcast. This is Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. This is Cody Rhodes, the prince of pro wrestling, and you are listening to two-man power trip. This is Jimmy Vine, the boogie Wooker man. Tell my people my brothers and sisters, don't you dare miss John and Chad. Hey, everybody out there. This is the franchise Shane Douglas. Remember me? <laughs> well, guys, it's great to be on the show again i appreciate you asking me back so you said you were going to pinch yourself i didn't know it was that kind of show now i mean if you guys are in the privacy of your own home if you want to do these things good how you doing chad hey johnny cool man what's going on we're ready to go or what uh, okay. hey man what's up guys this is homicide oh that's my homie homicide with a big homie club yeah that would be it hey this is david penzer and this is the two-man power trip of wrestling well, thank you, thank you. Hear me, fear me. I don't do many wrestling shows anymore, probably because I'm a bit ignorant. You guys probably know ten times more than I do. Look, Mean Gene, I can't be beat. I'm the greatest of all time. And I would say that. And every kid, I, they knew they could kick the out of me. Great talking to you guys. It's been your pleasure. <laughs> They've worked in and around the wrestling business. They've studied thousands of hours of wrestling. And now... They bring to you the greatest legends, Hall of Famers, creative minds, and both current and future stars of pro wrestling. They are Primetime Pod and Chad, the two-man power trip of wrestling. the two-man power trip of wrestling and you are listening to the final episode of 2017 for the two-man power trip of wrestling as we move forward into quite possibly our biggest year yet and if you didn't know by now my name is chad and as always i'm joined by my tag team partner here on the two-man power trip the one and only john paz and john is waiting in the wings for 2018 he is waiting for our big three-year anniversary show that will be coming to you 
in the next installment of the two-man power trip of wrestling. But before we get to the three-year anniversary, we've got to get through the end of 2017. And we welcome back a former guest of ours returning to the show as Mike Quackenbush comes back with a vengeance and joins us today for a part two following up on our conversation that we had about a year and a half ago. But this time, instead of talking more just about Chikara and what he's built in that Chikara universe, we're here to talk about his book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, which is written for fellow wrestlers, which is a great insight if you are not a wrestler to read. And we tackle all the aspects of the wrestling business and Mike's expertise in this interview. So if you heard the last one, you heard a lot about the history of Quackenbush in wrestling. You heard about how he got his start. You heard about the New Jersey independent scene. And you heard, of course, about Chikara. And of course, Chikara being probably the most unique independent wrestling promotion on the planet. We heard all about that. So this time it's to focus in on Mike's writings and this book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Professional Wrestler. So strap in, folks. It's a fun one. And we close out 2017 in a big way. And you know that 2018 is already going to be bringing our TMPT Con 2 in Richmond, Virginia. We've announced Eric Bischoff. We've announced our co-hosts on the Triple Threat Podcast, Shane Douglas. And there's so much more to come. So please stay tuned and strap in for some two-man power trip of wrestling action as the 2018 calendar year is going to be a big one. So stay tuned and keep on board the TMPT train as it's headed in one direction. And that is to the sky and the sky is the limit as we change here into a new calendar year. So happy new year from the two-man power trip. Get ready for a little Mike Quackenbush. And we will catch you in 2018 with our most controversial episode to date on our three-year anniversary special. Now for some TMPT business. Like us on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at Wrestling Pal. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. Also, subscribe to us on iTunes. Please leave us a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. Also, while on iTunes, check out the feed for prior legendary episodes featuring the living legend Bruno Sammartino, the late great American Dream Dusty Rose, the Enforcer Arn Anderson, Ray Mysterio Jr., Glenn Kane Jacobs, the phenomenal AJ Styles, lead WWE attorney Jerry McDivitt, and so many others. Also, while you're on the internet, check out ProWrestlingTees.com. Yes, that is ProWrestlingTees.com. They are your superstore for all your wrestling t-shirt needs. Check out our page. Check out Tito Santana, Coco Beware, Kevin Thorne, Buff Bagwell, Magnum TA, and so many others. Also, while you're on the web, check out our website, TMPTOfWrestling.com. And if you're on Android, please check us out on Google Play or Player FM. And now, without any further ado, we send it off to the Chikara's Director of Fun. He is a former NWA World Junior Champion. He's a wrestler, a promoter, a trainer, an author, a podcaster, a teacher, a mentor, a great coach. He is lightning. He is the master of a thousand holds. He is an innovator of offense. It's Mike Quackenbush. Please enjoy.
right. Well, joining us back here on the line is a guest that we have not spoken with in almost two years, which is hard to believe. At the time, he was a seven-time author. Now he's an eight-time author. And he is the man behind Chikara. We talked so much about the cool things going on in the world of Chikara at the time. But now we're welcoming back Mike Quackenbush to talk about his new book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer. Mike, welcome back to the two-man power trip of wrestling. Thanks for having me on, guys. So basically, with this book, you know, you're no stranger to the literary world of professional wrestling. And I find it interesting as a non-wrestler to get to read this book and kind of pick your brain a little bit as I'm reading each word because you give a lot of insight to a topic that as fans, if we read, we might not be too familiar. We know the, the lingo and the jargon, but when you put this book together and you were aiming it towards professional wrestlers, what was kind of going through your mind as you put this together? Did you have a template or did you have a goal in mind to make this be like a Bible for those who want to you know, in, in, enhance their game as a pro wrestler? Well, I don't know that I had a template, but I definitely had a goal. Um, and it was sort of born out of years and years of traveling the globe and teaching seminars. Uh, the majority of the teaching I do is at home at the Wrestle Factory in Philly, but, you know, a handful of times a year I, I travel out. I, I go somewhere. Uh, this weekend, for example, I'll be in Kansas City teaching. And when I do my seminars, I'm often met with feedback on certain topics like this. People will say, I feel like nobody is talking about this, or I'm so glad that this came up during the seminar because no one is addressing that. And those topics tend to have this in common. Um, because wrestling is such a traditionalist art form, uh, and a lot is lavished to honor you know, those that came before, trailblazers, and the way things used to be done, right? It's very traditionalized. Well, this is how things have always been done, so that's how we do them. Um, but as the world evolves around us, like at the, the speed of a mouse click, the art form needs to be evolving every bit as quickly, or else we are flirting with obsolescence. We will become extinct. And a lot of things pertinent to being like a modern performer are not being talked about. Um, we, there's no, you know, and I know there's like a, a traditionalist sect in wrestling that kind of rails against the idea that the genie is out of the bottle when it comes to kayfabe. And uh, for a while, certainly, I, I kind of felt the same way. Like part of what our tradition is, is disappearing. But there's also no putting that genie back in the bottle. Everything you could ever want to know about how things work is probably contained in four Wikipedia pages or less. So you can continue to rail against that, like, oh, man, you know, uh, the Internet's exposing everything and it's ruining the business and blah, 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 blah. And, and man, I just, like, I, I, I can't espouse any of that. Like, it's time to put the past where it belongs in the past. Look at where we're at now and say... You know, what can we do going forward? And what are the real challenges that we're facing as performers in front of modern audiences? There's no more time to bemoan, oh, things used to be like this, or things were so much better back then. Or you know what, before the internet and before everything was exposed, before kayfabe was killed, things were so much better. Yeah, probably. Cool story, bro. But now it's time for us to move forward, or the art form will start to regress or die. Yeah, and that's so interesting. And, and using those words like modern and old, you know, the old school or the old guard, there's so much that's changed, uh, both, I'm sure, from the wrestlers' end, but also from the fans' end, where John and I can really see uh, what the fan end is all about. But there's so much to learn now. And, and you can go out and find different 
uh, parts of the learning tree, whether it's, you know, uh, well, I studied this guy's promos or, oh, I watched this guy's match a thousand times and I'm going to, you know, learn to tweak things by doing this different or that different. But it doesn't matter until you're through those ropes. And the fact that the business has changed and you have to modernize your ability, what do you find to be the hardest challenges for those wrestlers that can't make those changes? Is there one specific thing that they do wrong or is it just something that they haven't learned yet? No, I, I don't think it's anything that they necessarily do wrong. Um, but a, a phrase I often use when I come across people like that or, you know, uh, I'm, like I'm sent an example, you know. Um, this has happened a lot since I launched a podcast of mine called Kayfabe 2.0, which is very much meant to be a companion piece to the Seven Keys book. And, you know, someone will send me a match of theirs and they'll say, please watch this. And, you know, like, what is it about? Why couldn't I get a better match out of this guy? Is it me? Is it him? Is it something about the match? Like, where are we going wrong? And I don't know that it's necessarily that people are doing things wrong, um, but there was a way things used to be, and, and that way has changed because attention spans have changed. Um, there was a fascinating study done uh, at, considering the mobile revolution starts in the year 2000. And Microsoft paid to have this study done. It was done two years ago. And it's non-peer-reviewed. But nevertheless, it shows that the human attention span now is, I think it's less than seven seconds. I'm trying to remember the exact statistic. And uh, I know a related statistic about this that might surprise you. Uh, if you ever watch YouTube, like on your mobile device, like I watch on my iPad, for example, when I'm watching the main YouTube video that I've picked, on the sidebar, uh, YouTube will immediately recommend some suggested videos that it thinks it might like for me. Is your interface with YouTube similar? Can you picture that? Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Right. So uh, we decide as viewers in seven and a half seconds if we are going to stay with the video we picked or jump to one of the related videos, right? All we do is we make a snap judgment. We look at the other thumbnails and maybe what the titles are or maybe the number of views that it has. And we decide, has this thing grabbed my attention sufficiently or is it time for me to jump away? And that decision is made before the eight second mark. So... Think about that for a second, and then think about wrestling as long-form entertainment. We don't watch matches that are eight seconds or less. There are very few of them. Uh, you know, wrestling matches are four minutes, nine minutes, 12 minutes. Or, or think about S Steamboat and Flair, right? They had 60-minute draws. Um, there's some modern 90-minute draws. There are some crazy Iron Man matches. I think there was one in Germany in the last year that went two hours. So we're making long-form content in a world that is increasingly short-form. How can we better address the needs of those audience members? Because if we're not thinking about that, the world will pass us by. And I love wrestling. I'm passionate about wrestling. I want to see wrestling evolve into its ultimate form. And I think if we're not willing to have these kinds of conversations, it never will. And it got to a point where I realized I will not travel everywhere. Right? I turn down more seminars than I accept. Like, I'm, I don't like travel. Um, like to convince me to get on an airplane and go anywhere, like, it takes a little bit of nudging and persuading. But I think these, these ideas and concepts are really important to all aspiring and current professional wrestlers. And I felt like the book might be the best way to get it out there. Yeah, that's so great. And I'll tell you, professional wrestlers have taken to social media in a big way and really embraced it to market their stuff if they are on the independent level and introducing you to promotions and territories that you may not have known there was either a, uh, a promotion that existed 
or active wrestling going on there. So I'll give wrestling as a whole kudos to being ahead of social media. But I even had somebody contact me about our Facebook page where they said, you know, the, the title that you put up for your episode is a little long and that studies show, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, like people really break down the analytics of everything, whether it's a Facebook posting or a YouTube video. Do you see analytics playing a big game in professional wrestling now? Or is that too sabermetricy and baseball of me to think that, you know, the amount of minutes in a match or the amount of time you spend uh, working on a segment, you know, th- does that stuff kind of translate to what you're teaching wrestlers to be aware of changes in the business um, kind of all, you know, encompassing together in one, um, I don't know, like it's almost like a, a time limit, you know, because people have such short and different attention spans now. Yeah, I, I think the devil's in the details. And there is something to be learned from looking uh, at that level of detail. You know, there was a time, and, and, and I don't know if this speaks to your fandom, but, uh, you know, I watched very ardently throughout the Monday Night Wars when a whole lot of scrutiny was put on things as ridiculous as quarter-hour Nielsen ratings between Raw and Nitro, and who was on during this quarter-hour, and what does that mean when Nitro did counter-programming with these guys? Oh, you know, over here, like, they had another Bariqua's DOA segment, but you know what, over here they countered with the cruiserweights, and they did have Rey Mysterio on for two commercial breaks, and what does this mean over here, and what does it mean over there? Um, You know, a lot of scrutiny was put into that kind of thing, because the devil's in the details, and yes, I do think there's stuff to be learned from looking at all that, If, if nothing else, like, to not, to choose to be ignorant of that right now is very, very dangerous, to look at it and say, you know what, I don't, I don't know that I've learned anything here. Well, man, at least you're paying attention because the whole rest of the world is. And, like, wrestling does not exist in a vacuum. It, it, it's part of the reason, you know, why it can sometimes be a struggle to feel like wrestling is lacking a certain type of acceptance. It's because it evolves so slowly. You see how all, all these other types of forms of entertainment evolve incredibly rapidly. And it feels to me, at least... Like the art form I love often lags behind the times. So one question I would have for you about it is why seven keys and not six keys or eight keys? Is there, is there something that you just that you felt putting these down on paper that that was enough to, uh, you know, the bullet points you wanted to address in the, uh, the individual breakdown of the book? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something weird about uh, the way the book came together that sort of explains that. Um, I had a window of time that was roughly six days long where uh, the players who were very significant to me in my personal life were all away, all unavailable. And a lot of the really pressing work that I had, I had managed to delegate a lot of it out, and I cleared out six days. And I thought, what's the most valuable thing I could write if I took all six days and just never got up from the keyboard? And I started by formatting it, and I did a draft of it, and I thought, you know what? I can, I can make these more concise. I can whittle this down even more. And then I just – another draft of it, and I thought, I can get this even more concise. And you may know if you, if you held a physical copy of the book, the, the book is not big. It, it's 70 or 72 pages printed, I believe. And what I really wanted was for these to be bite-sized chunks that – if, if tonight or tomorrow night you were going to have your first professional wrestling match, you could sit and read one of those chapters in five minutes and take something away and then put it in your performance that night. 
And as soon as I was done with it, of course, and, and then it went off, my publishing agent, Chad, had to do whatever he does. He writes the About the Author page and makes sure that everything is in the correct format. Uh, while all that was being done, immediately, of course, I thought, oh, I should have talked more about this. And then I thought, oh, oh man, like I should have talked more about this topic. This would have fit. And from that came Kayfabe 2.0. So although the podcast is the same content and tone as the book, I had this wealth of other ideas that made me think these are worthy of being explored. Like, could it have made a whole chapter in the book? Probably not. Nevertheless, I bet you I could talk about it for five or ten minutes. And so the two kind of work symbiotically. Yeah, no, and you always have to find uh, a great marriage between the two aspects of it. But so you, you do your podcast, you've written your books, you, you do your promotion. How do you find the time to put a book together, where, whether it be 78 pages in a physical copy or not? How do you still find the time to actually be able to put that pen to paper and put a book together? Well, it's like anything that you're really passionate about, I guess. I, I've, I've always been a writer. I've been a writer longer than I've been a wrestler. But there have been times when my obligations to the world of wrestling eat up so much of my time that my writing fell by the wayside. Or the writing that I did was not the type that gets published in book form, right? I, I, there are other ways in which I write as well. But um, it had kind of dawned on me. It had been quite a while since I'd put anything out. You know, my, my first work comes out in the summer of 1998, and here it is 2017. Um, and I realized, like, in many ways I had been writing this book in my head all along because this is very much the type of material I talk about at my seminars anyway, so it wasn't like I had to create it all from scratch. If anything, there was like a wealth of information waiting to be put down on paper. It was a matter of how do I keep making it more and more concise? You know, these two points are really all about one bigger point. And let me draw out a bit so I can combine um, and just make it more succinct, more succinct, more succinct. And I feel that way about the podcast, too. There are some podcasts I listen to uh, about professional wrestling that are between two and three hours long and often come out multiple times a month. And I can't keep up with all that content, even though I'm very interested in what they have to say. And I thought, I don't want to make content of that type. I want it to be bite-sized, and uh, a word that kept rolling around in my head was actionable. Is there something in this, this one 10-minute podcast, this one 10-page chapter, that's actionable as soon as the reader is done with it? That's always my goal. And... It's interesting for me to hear, right, feedback from people who are not, uh, they're not professional wrestlers. They're just fans. They're lovers of the art form. Um, you know, what they take away from it, whether they've read a chapter or they've read the whole book, like, obviously, it's, it's not written for them. Nevertheless, I don't doubt they might find it intriguing insight. And so uh, I've found that to be uh, a very interesting offshoot of the whole project is hearing from people that are like, you know, this applies to what I do as a stand-up comedian, this applies perfectly to what I do as the bass player in a band. This applies perfectly to what I do in my team dynamic at work. I found that to be really intriguing. Very intriguing, very interesting. And there was something in there when I read that chapter of the book that you sent, and I said, you know, that makes a whole lot of sense, but I can't believe this guy hates Jimmy Buffett this much. Do you really hate <laughs> Jimmy Buffett? <laughs> I'm so glad that's your takeaway. From <laughs> I like one Jimmy Buffett song. It's from a 1994 album of his called Fruitcakes, and the song is called Apocalypso. Um, I think it's a very funny... 
like <laughs> drums of death type look at things. But uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm not a fan. <laughs> As you could tell from the book, I'm really not a fan. Um, but it was such a perfect analogy because my, one of my very best friends is an unabashed parrot head. So uh, <laughs> because of that phenomenon of Jimmy Buffett always playing those couple of his biggest songs at every single concert, I thought this is the exact real world analogy that I need for this to hit home with certain readers. And I've heard that analogy before from uh, Brian Johnson from ACDC saying that the fans want us to play certain songs, you know, that are quote unquote, the greatest hits that we have to play every night. And I love how you kind of get, you know, you, you make a great analogy and you woven it into wrestling and the Jimmy Buffett thing, but I love the Bret Hart part because it's almost like, you know, really hitting home with it with a wrestler. Obviously, you're talking about one of the greatest wrestlers of all time and how his greatest hits were created. Can you just kind of go into detail about what what you mean about the the greatest hits and the wrestling moves and, and basically, you know, how he started as a tag wrestler, used certain moves and kind of basically perfected his craft. Yeah, um, and. You know, I, I did not see Bret Hart stuff in Calgary Stampede. I've seen very little, like few hours of Calgary Stampede footage I've ever watched in my entire life. So that part of his career uh, I'm a bit ignorant of. Um, some of his earliest matches when he's wearing like all gray against the original Tiger Mask that happened in New Japan Pro Wrestling, like that's kind of the first Bret Hart stuff that I've seen. But then we all kind of become familiar with him, you know, I guess depending on when you start watching. Um, you see him with Jim Neidhart as part of the Hart Foundation. You see him spend his years in the trenches doing tag team wrestling. He becomes the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, and then there's kind of like the, uh, the paradigm shift for the WWF. That's the end of the Hulkamania era, and the new generation is beginning. And suddenly, Bret Hart is world champion. But by that time, he, he had really honed his craft. And uh, I, I think if we use some of the terminology that I, I often use in my seminars, and you'll find in the book as well, if you have a band that you follow really religiously, this will all kind of make sense to you. And for me, like it's, it's easy for me to reference some of the bands that I love best of all. I, I, I know I, meant, I call out by name David Byrne of the Talking Heads in, in the book. Another band that I love very much out of Brooklyn, New York, is They Might Be Giants. And I've followed They Might Be Giants for more than 30 years now, I guess. About 30 years, give or take. Um, you know what your B-sides are. Uh, you might love your B-sides, but your audience probably wants to hear your biggest hits because it's your biggest hits that got you to the dance. That's what got you there. You had a, and, and some bands, right, they've only ever had a few radio hits. Um, I often, about 10 years ago, I saw a tour came through. It's called the 80s Rewind Tour, and it was like a package tour. Have you ever seen one of these package tours where it's like six bands, each of them play for about 20 minutes? Have you ever seen one like that? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So uh, I went to see this 80s package tour, and the Human League was there, and ABC, and Belinda Carlisle, and they, they were all great. And in the middle happened to be a flock of seagulls. And it was just the main guy, and then a bunch of backup guys that were not the other seagulls. And I don't know that I could name anybody in the flock of seagulls, but I remember the music video, and I know the dude that had the really funky haircut. Well, the dude with the really funky haircut, he's there, he's like in tattered jeans, he looks all disheveled, and he's got a hat on, and he gets to the end of his 20-minute set, and everyone's kind of waiting for the one Flock of Seagulls song we all know, I Ran. We're all waiting for that one. And he says, well, you know, I gotta play this one. And he seems disgusted by it. 
And I, I don't know if you've ever come across that, like a musical artist who's like at odds with their one-hit wonderdom. Have you ever heard of an artist like that? <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. Right? Like, what a weird thing. Like, man, this is the thing that makes everybody love you. This is the thing that got you to the dance. This is probably the reason that you've got a house and a car is the royalties that are still rolling in from iTunes sales of Iran, a flock of seagulls. Don't begrudge that. But more importantly, don't begrudge the audience. You are beholden to them, right? The patrons of your art form. If they don't buy the concert tickets, you sit at home and do nothing. And the same is true in professional wrestling. If you don't give the fans the experience that they're paying for, then they're going to take those entertainment dollars and they're going to spend them somewhere else. Every top performer, and you could, you could look at it generationally, from Hulk Hogan, then there's the paradigm shift uh, to Bret Hart, followed by, if you want to say, Shawn Michaels is next, and then it's the Steve Austin era, that's when The Rock is happening. We've had a giant period of time, right, where it's been John Cena. Each of those guys, they know their greatest hits, and they know to go out there, whether it's a house show, whether it's a pay-per-view, what, whatever the live event might happen to be, they know... I have a responsibility to play my greatest hits. That's what got me to the dance. That's what made me this level of popular that a company, and especially in the case of the WWE, a multi-billion dollar multinational, you know, super powerful company is trusting you to be the face of their whole organization. You better go out there and play your greatest hits because that's what people bought tickets to see. Um... And I wanted to kind of help my fellow professional wrestlers to push back against this feeling of, oh man, like, is my material getting stale when the audience starts to recognize it? Like, if these moves become synonymous with me, does that mean I'm getting stale? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's a wonderful thing when a series of moves becomes synonymous with a wrestler. Uh, you only get that way through repetition. And once you actually get there, revel in that. Revel in the fact that now you do have a greatest hit because there are certainly people behind you coming up the card lower down or Greenhorns just starting out. They don't even have one hit to play. They're out there just playing any old song that they know and hoping it gets a reaction from the audience. They have nothing to bank on. What a level of security that brings to you as a performer when you know these are my greatest hits or you know these are the kinds of things I play when I'm in this kind of town and this will play in New York but it does not play in San Antonio and the last time I was booked in Atlanta they hated it so I'm not doing it there that's going to make you a more well-rounded a more reliable professional I just love that analogy it's so perfect because you gotta hit the greatest hits because that's what the fans want to see and obviously you're not going to be with the same fans every night so Maybe, you know, somebody going to their first show or somebody going to their 50th show, they still want to see you know, Hogan's leg drop, uh, you know, Hogan uh, doing do the kind of the no sell or things like that. And I just thought the Bret Hart thing was perfect because it does take a while, right? You're mm -hmm. kind of trying to say it, it does take a while to kind of perfect and, and hone your craft. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a journey. And um, I, I've seen David Byrne in concert numerous numerous times all post talking heads and i like that i can see the mechanics of how his set list changes that these songs work and these don't and you know what i have to try the ones on my new album and see if they get a reaction from the audience and you know what like five dates later if it wasn't getting a reaction it comes out of his set list but that drew such a clear analogy in my mind watching how david byrne would put together his concert set lists because it is a whole lot like the way we might order moves in a performance. What's the feeling I want to give the room when I walk off? 
Does David Byrne want the room to call for him back out for an encore? Or does he want them exhausted by the frenetic pace of the last third of his set? I think there's a number of analogies between those. Um, and all of that's, you know, worthy of discussion. Now, as far as, you know, yourself and, and the seven keys, and we're talking about the greatest hits, is there something that you do during your matches? Or, or what you is there a certain point or a certain click where you're like, oh, I want to hit this move, I want to hit that move. If the crowd reacts this way, I'm going to hit this greatest hit. Is there something, or is that just something natural that comes to you from being such a skilled performer for all the years? Um, I don't know that I was as aware of these things when I was still a very active wrestler. And now I'm a fairly inactive wrestler. I might have three matches a year now. Um, there, there was a period of three and a half years where I had no matches. And it was during this time where I had to put my focus on teaching. And all the bookings that I got were teaching bookings because I was no longer performing. And in that period of time, what, one of the great things that I got to experience was... I took well over uh, 100 classes on uh, how to improvise. I took improv classes all throughout Philadelphia. I went to workshops, and I spent hundreds, maybe thousands of hours learning that craft. But all of it helped me improve as a professional wrestler. What was crazy about the, you know, the weirdness of all that was, at the time, I wasn't wrestling at all. So I came back to it having learned that craft, but also learning from all those teachers because a lot of times, you know, they would pull me aside at the end and they'd be like, what are you doing in this class? Um, you know, you're not a comedian. Like, you're not, you're not aspiring to be an, an improviser on stage, you know, like you might see on Whose Line Is It Anyway, for example. Um, like, what are you doing? And I would explain to them, like, I think this is a really valuable skill that I wish I would have learned earlier on in my professional wrestling career. And one person would kind of point me to another and say, you know who, who would be perfect to talk to and does something very similar to what you do? You need to go and learn from this guy. And then that guy would turn around and say, I'm going to send you to a friend of mine. Tell, tell her that I sent you. She'll put you right into her class. And I went on this great journey of, of learning. And it helped me crystallize a lot of these kind of amorphous ideas into such a form that I could start putting them down on paper or that I could record a podcast about them or make them into bite-sized class chunks. And I wish I had learned a lot of this years and years ago. I think I would have had a better career. Uh, I, I think I would have had the opportunity maybe to do more of the things uh, that I wanted to do that I never got to do if I had learned these types of skills at a younger age, especially before I was hobbled by injury. And my first instinct about that was, how can I quickly get this out to people earlier on in their careers so that they have the benefit of this? Um, so, and, and I reflect on my own experience. When I first started in independent wrestling, I had zero training. And I did not have a mentor. And that <laughs> profoundly influenced my trajectory through independent wrestling. I had to make every mistake, every, every, every possible error you could make. Like, my trial and error was just an end error. And... um I, I, I don't want other people to have to tread through that. Like, I don't want them to have to make the same stupid mistakes that I made. Um, like, I want to help people kind of, like, get out of their own way and get to their best work as fast as possible. Because I wish I had gotten to my best work at a much younger age. Now, I guess you didn't have this aspect of, of the training then that you do now, but the five tries you think if you kind of knew that then and, and worked it out, like you said, with, you know, basically five different opponents, five different moves, you know, that kind of thing, kind of just, if you could, delve a little bit deeper into the five tries. Sure. 
Um, it, and it's not unlike exactly what I saw uh, or explained about David Byrne putting a new song in his set list. You might have an idea for a new move. You might have an idea for a new spot. Or it might be something as simple as like a character beat that you're going to put in front of the audience, but you don't know if it's going to work. Um, you could, of course, you can always play it safe. This is my tried and true material, but I think all working professionals, whether you're a musician or a wrestler, you always have to be working on that new album of material. And not all of them are going to be hits, right? Uh, even after a certain point in his career, the king of pop, Michael Jackson, would put out an album and they weren't all hits, right? You got to have those deep cuts, and there's going to be times when you're going to pull them out and play them. But you're never going to discover that next greatest hit if you aren't always working on new material. So put that new material out there and give it five tries. And you might try it in this town, and you might try it over here, you might try it in this setting. And you know, with this setting over here, I'm playing more to children, but over here it's a more grown-up crowd. Here I'm playing to self-styled critics. Here I'm playing to inmates. Whatever the case might be, but you need to try that out in front of audiences that feel different and get a sense like, yeah, you know what? This one is working great. It works no matter what. Or conversely, to come to the realization, this thing doesn't work no matter where I put it in the match, no matter who I'm with, and no matter what town I'm in, it just isn't working. And yeah, maybe I am enjoying it, but I don't think it's going to work in my live set. Uh, and and <laughs> that's just the trial and error I think we all have to go through. And it's tough. The thing I talk about in the very last chapter of Seven Keys is the willingness to fail. And this is something I know we don't talk enough about in professional wrestling. You won't get to your best work unless you're willing to go out there and bear some failure. You must make mistakes. Every once and again, like, you're going to drop a turd in the ring, and it's not going to go the way you want it to, and you might stink the joint up. But you're never going to get to the successes unless you get those failures out of the way. Um, and, and you must. We all must as performers. You've got to be willing to fail. And if you can't bear that, you, you will not get to your best work. The successes will have no meaning if you haven't learned from your failures first. Um, and ultimately, it will just make you a far better performer. Now, you said you didn't have much training and, and, and you know, when you first started out. Mm -hmm. But when you started to kind of evolve yourself and started to create some of your greatest hits, I know, obviously... Uh, me and uh, Chad here, me and Ian, we have been a part of some of that on the New Jersey independent scene, seeing the matches. Is this something you learn from an ace darling or a reckless youth that you need to start creating some greatest hits, or is that something you figure out on your own? No, I, I think, unfortunately, it's the kind of thing that you're meant to figure out on your own. I think there's a lot of topics that maybe we imagine everybody just knows, but I don't think that's true. The fact that I would go out so often and teach and people would say, man, nobody's talking about this. Why? No one taught me this. I've been wrestling for five years. Why, didn't, why wasn't I taught this on day two? All of that makes me think that this whole idea of, yeah, man, everybody knows what they're doing. Yeah, I, I, I don't know that that's true. Uh, I, I think these things are worthy of being talked about because I never had anybody sit down and explain them to me. And I've come across more people than I can count who say the exact same thing to me, like, Man, I wish somebody would have taught me this. It's crazy because I was. Uh, this was a couple uh, months ago. I guess it was an old interview I was reading with uh, Chris Jericho, and he was saying that I guess he was working a match with Dolph Ziggler, and he and he was calling for some spot, and Ziggler had no idea, and uh, Jericho goes, "How do you not know that?" So mm -hmm. it, it, I guess it even happens to guys that have been in WWE for an extended period of time. Yeah, absolutely. And vocabularies change. Um, 
Here's a great example. Uh, I know this as Marafuji. If I were to shoot you to the ropes, and after you've bounced off, I ran directly behind you, and I bounced off a second later so that I came up behind you, I know that as Marafuji. Because Naomichi Marafuji is the first guy that I know of that ever did that in a wrestling ring. But I just heard in training somebody say, oh, that's the mirror image. And I thought, if I was live in front of an audience and someone said mirror image, I would have no idea what that meant. So that might have been exactly what Dolph Ziggler went through, right? Chris mm. Jericho says something like this. Uh, you know, it's crazy to think about. He's synonymous with what we would call the lion's salt. But there's a country where you might go to, and that's called Quebrada, the waterfall, right? In-ring acai moonsault. That's called Quebrada. So you've got to know the vocabulary. And somebody might shoot you in and say, Quebrada, and you're like, I don't know what that is. And yeah, somebody might very justifiably say, how do you not know Quebrada? Oh, that thing to me is hmm. a lion salt. Um, so there's all those types of factors that you have to consider. It is very interesting. Yeah, that is, that is true. You, you never quite know. And obviously... Marafuji, uh, if anybody didn't know that uh, that he came up with that move, that would kind of be surprising to me as well, because having seen so many of his matches and so much of his stuff, but Jericho himself, when he was doing the Codebreaker, I guess he didn't know that was a Marafuji move. So it is interesting, like all the different things people don't really know, right? You yeah. figure if he knows that, he must know that. Yeah, and sometimes it's because, you know, the WWE is a great example of this like insular community. And Chris Jericho is kind of an anomaly because he leaves and comes back and he leaves and he comes back. He's going to go wrestle Kenny Omega, but we all know it's just a matter of time before he's back with the WWE to collect a paycheck again or whatever. Um, but most of those guys, and I've got some friends that are there, is very insular. Like they all talk a certain way. They all watch the exact same matches, right? They share them back and forth. Did you watch this? Yeah, I just watched that. But there's all kinds of stuff that they don't watch that they're completely ignorant of. And this is true of like any little wrestling community, an insular wrestling community. They might be really expert at this one thing, but there's a whole universe of wrestling out there to explore. And one of the things I enjoyed most of all is, uh, as an active performer was learning all the different wrestling styles. I wanted to know how to wrestle a luchador so that I could go to Mexico and they wouldn't feel like, oh, man, am I going to have to slow down or change what I do for this dumb American? No, you won't. No, I know exactly. What, and everything is switched over. You got it. And I know all the terminology. You can call it to me in Spanish and I'm ready for all of it. I'm absolutely ready. And I want to be able to go to England and do that with the guys that do the old school world of sport, clean, classy and clever style. I know all your terminology. I know all the transitions. You aren't going to have to change for me. I will adapt to you. And I want to do the exact same thing when I get to Japan. And I'm going to do the exact same thing when I get to Germany. I'm going to do the exact same thing in the Midwestern independence where the thing that we call up and over in Philadelphia is called water under the bridge over here yep i know your vocabulary as well i wanted to always feel like i was an appreciative guest no matter whose house i was in uh and i think th that contributed a lot to why i was lucky enough to whatever i wrestled in 20 different countries or i uh, wrestled thousands of matches against people from all different styles and i could go anywhere and wrestle anyone and adjust to what they do as quickly as possible um that's one of the things learning those wrestling dialects it was one of the things I enjoyed most of all. And the crazy thing with you is when I went down for a day and I trained with you, you know, you think you're a fan, you think you know all the stuff, and, you know, you really don't know anything because uh, I was circling right, and, and I guess 
um, the guy I was in there with was circling left, but it, it didn't quite make sense. You said, well, we're in America, so we're going to circle right. We're not in Mexico, so we're not going to circle left. What did you mean by that? Because, you know, still trying to think of that, is, is it different there? Is everything opposite? Mm-hmm. Yep, you're exactly right. Um, it's all the mirror image. Uh, and and you'll, you'll see that stylistically. Uh, for example, uh, when wrestlers anywhere other than Mexico lock up in a collar and elbow tie, my left hand grabs your collar and my right hand goes in the pit of your elbow. But watch any, you know, any video from CMLL, AAA, etc. Watch how traditionally trained Mexican luchadors lock up. It's the mirror image. Their right hand grabs the collar and their left hand grabs the elbow. So uh, it, it, all of it switches like that. And you can imagine if you're trained to do that one way and then all of a sudden you're asked to do the complete opposite of that, that can feel very alien. But that's part of why, like, at the advanced levels, uh, what we do at the Wrestle Factory, I want my guys to be able to do Lucha Libre every bit the same. If we are fortunate enough that we happen to be visited by a guest from Mexico, the last thing I want them to feel is like, oh, man, like, are these guys going to know what, what I do? Yeah, I, I, I want people to be as well-rounded as possible. And, and whatever that means to each individual, I want to try and give them the tools um, to do that. And... Uh, I'll tell you, this is not the sort of thing I often indulge, but I'll tell, I'll tell it to the two of you. Um, I, I, a while ago, I, I read a comment that I took real umbrage with that said that uh, Mike Wackenbush uh, often with, withholds the information that he knows uh, so that he is always better than his trainees. And something about that really got under my skin because I thought, this is the complete opposite of how I teach, and this is the complete opposite of how I feel. I take such a great measure of pride when I see somebody leave my training facility knowing they have all the tools, if they haven't already, will soon eclipse anything I ever did uh, in professional wrestling. It gives me a tremendous sense of pride when I see how amazing my trainees are. And through whether it's a podcast that I currently make or a book that I just put out or the training that I offer that I know you had the chance to come and partake of for a day, I want to give all the knowledge that I have to everybody else. Because early on, when I started and I had zero training, I was dying for a bit of that information. And I I incurred horrible injuries that stopped my career years before it should have stopped because of that ignorance. I wish I had that information, and now I am in a position where I can give that information to others. And, uh, yeah, that's what I have to say about that. Amazing that somebody would say that, because it it definitely is totally not true. And then just looking at a guy like Claudio, a.k.a. Cesaro in WWE, and you can kind of see your blueprint all over him, and something tells me that you taught him a whole hell of a lot. Yeah, you know... uh, Claudio Castagnoli probably would have ended up as a star regardless of where he trained. I feel very fortunate, though, that he graduated from the Wrestle Factory, that no one spent more hours training that guy in the ring than I did. Um, I take tremendous pride in seeing where he's gone, and it's, it's with mixed feelings for this reason. Number one, I miss my friend, and uh, I think he was the closest thing to a wrestling simpatico that I had in the ring. Uh, I could bring the best out in him, and he always brought out the best in me, and we had a great, very friendly rivalry in the way that we would challenge each other to always be better, and I miss that about my friend. But I sincerely hope he never comes back. I want him to become the biggest possible success. Make your millions, 
change the world of wrestling one match at a time and show them how very good you are. Uh, that would be the biggest thanks I could ever get from him. Just don't come back. He is uh, quite an athlete, quite a performer, obviously quite a wrestler. Now, you obviously were asked to go down to the Performance Center uh, with the, the NXT guys and do some training down there. Your blueprint was kind of all over some of the training that they did down there anyway. So what was kind of the experience like down there, and did you bring any of the seven keys along with you? Uh, what was very validating, being down there and seeing how much of my Wrestle Factory curriculum had been brought there by Sarah Del Rey, who is now the assistant, the head assistant coach underneath Matt Bloom. Um, it, 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 I found it deeply rewarding, and it was really validating because I, I accepted the offer to go down there and be a, a guest coach, and I did so with a bit of trepidation because, you know, I have my own proprietary take on things. I have my method of doing things, and I wondered, will this clash with the WWE's way of doing things? Uh, like, am I going to be followed around by somebody from corporate who every time I say professional wrestling says, we say sports entertainment here? And I, I worried, like, this might go badly. And, of course, I don't want to embarrass my friend Sarah. You know, they had, they, they had some meeting, and they all put forth ideas of who might be good to have down there, and she, she vouched for me. So the last thing I want to do is embarrass my friend who stuck her neck out for me. Um, but So it was with a bit of trepidation that I went down there. And it, one, it, of course, it was really validating to see, like, these guys do a lot of my curriculum. This is amazing. But then how warmly they just embraced my take on things, a lot of which is in the book, I found really rewarding. Uh, one day, uh, they had me run their four o'clock class, which is all promos. And there must have been 30 or 40 kids that were in this class. It was an overwhelming number of kids. And they were all meant to cut a promo before the class is over. And they do this every single day to try and get them as many repetitions in as possible so that by the time somebody's willing to put a microphone in front of their face on Monday Night Raw, they don't freeze up, they know what to say, they carry themselves with poise and confidence, and they can stand and deliver. But, of course, this is them at their nascent stage. So, you know, the a lot of the current batch of NXT stars, and a couple of whom have already ascended to the WWE, um, like th these people back then, they're in my promo class. Like I'm, I'm trying to explain to Alexa Bliss how to get greater emotional resonance out of the 45 seconds that she's got with the microphone. When it was all over, the guy who at the time was the head writer of NXT, and he's since moved on, I believe, to SmackDown, uh, he said to me, I hope it's all right, but I'm just going to steal everything that you said in this class. And I thought, great, like that's why I'm here, right? We all have different perspectives on how we do things, and the way they did things at the Performance Center were very inspiring to me. Never in a million years did I think I would come back with all the ideas that I did, like, you know what, they do this and it's brilliant. Like, why aren't we doing this? Um, I, I went down there meant to teach, but I came back having learned a lot. It's pretty good, though, that, you know, you go down there and can kind of leave a stamp or you leave a mark because, you know, you hear things like, oh, they're very stringent. They like to do things their way. They're not very adaptable, things like that. So it is good to hear that you go down there and you really do make an impression on them. Yeah, you know, I, I, I've heard similar things, and that was not my experience at all. I was ready for that rigidity, um, which I guess I maybe just imagined was there, right? Like that corporate level uh, structure would imply a certain rigidity, but it wasn't that way. M more than once, they were like, here, you run the class. Do your thing. Like, we brought you here because you know something. Show us what you know. Cool. 
Um, and it was very flattering to be offered a gig down there as a coach. Like if moving to Orlando was something that my life could sustain, man, that's an offer I probably would have considered for more than 30 seconds. It's just that divesting myself of all my other business interests in wrestling and deciding to go to Orlando and be a coach forever and ever, that's not in the cards for me right now. Nevertheless, like it meant a lot just to be asked. And I was genuinely surprised by how flexible they were down there, how willing they were to like give me some leash. And yeah, like get in the ring and show a couple of these funky transitions to Gable and Jordan. <laughs> Can I please? Yes. <laughs> Is it something that you would consider in the future if, you know, if you could move to Orlando and everything worked out? Is it something you would definitely be interested in becoming a coach down there? It's a very interesting idea. Um, you know, they run this wonderful facility down there. I, I found the work exhausting, though. Like, I, I did more than a few 11- and 12-hour days in the week that I was at the Performance Center. And it did give me an appreciation when I saw a friend of mine who's a coach down there, Adam Pierce. Uh, like, he was meant to leave for the day at 4 o'clock. And at 4 on the dot, he was walking out of there. And just the few days that I was at the Performance Center made me understand why. Because it could easily consume your entire life. There's 80 aspiring athletes in that facility at any given time, right? They let some go, then they hire some new ones, but that's about how many are coming through there at any given time, 80. And they're all, and, and I mean this lovingly, especially to the friends that I made while I was down there, they're all scared to death. They're scared that the next time Canyon Seaman walks in there with a clipboard, they're the ones that are going to be terminated. They're worried that, uh, you know, these nebulous ideas that you probably hear talked about a lot, right? Like, this guy, he just doesn't have the X factor. This guy just doesn't have it. He's lacking that special thing, right? Well, that's all really vague. How do you say that to a bunch of people who are saying, well, teach it to me. I'm here. You're the coach, and I'm the trainee. Teach me this amorphous, vague X factor. Teach me the it thing that you're looking for. And a lot of them can't articulate it. And so you end up with all these super talented guys and girls that are all just scared, I don't know what my character is. I don't know what they want from me. The things that they say we need most, they can't articulate or teach to us. But I guess I can do more jumping jacks or spend an extra hour in the weight room. Or, oh, there's a guest coach here who will stay after hours and help us with promos. Let's see if we can get him to stay for six straight hours. Like, I get why that place is the way that it is. And I would love the opportunity, uh, if my schedule worked out, that I could go back down a second time or to spend more time doing it. But as a full-time thing... I don't know. Like, I almost wonder if it would eat me alive. Definitely an interesting uh, proposition. Obviously, if they're using some of your curriculum, it'd be great if, if you were actually teaching it. Obviously, Sarah is a pretty good teacher as well, but it'd be great if you were down there teaching it too. The thing with, uh, you know, down there and, and WWE and different things like that, did you ever have an aspiration to actually wrestle at all for them? Or, or was that kind of never really your goal or, or your vision as far as getting into the business? I don't think it was ever a, a realistic goal for me. And I knew that. Like, I knew that about my cosmetic appearance. Um, you may know this about the, the current method in which they hire, right? The, uh, the WWE, uh, the things that they are looking for, there, there are four qualifications. Like if you went to one of their tryout camps, let's say somebody vouched for you uh, and you got to go down to their next hiring camp, which for all I know actually might be happening this, this month. There might be another one in November. Uh, the number one thing that they're looking for in new hirees is cosmetic appearance. Uh, the number two thing is they consider your age. The number three thing that they consider is coachability. That's a really important term I heard a lot down there. You want to guess what the last thing on the list was? 
uh, it factor, maybe? Was if you could wrestle. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's the last thing. <laughs> right. Like, that's bottom priority to them. And I understand why. Like, on the surface, that seems laughable, right? Like, we can have a chuckle about that. But nevertheless, they have a world-class facility, the likes of which has never existed before, state-of-the-art weight room, seven rings. It's beautifully climate-controlled at every time of the year. And they have amazing coaches, Norman Smiley, Robbie Brookside, Adam Pierce, Sarah Del Rey, uh, Terry Taylor, just up and down, people with all kinds of crazy experience. Think of all the places Norman Smiley wrestled. You know, a lot of people only know him from WCW. He was a huge star in CMLL. He was a huge star in Europe. Um, look him up. You know, he used to be called Black Magic before he was just known as Norman Smiley. Um, Robbie Brookside, what a phenomenally talented technician. Uh, the experience of Terry Taylor, b- both in front of and behind the camera. Years writing and producing, but also having great matches throughout his entire career. And, and doing a variety of different characters, showing his versatility. They can teach anybody how to wrestle. They're confident in that, and they should be. And that's why they can take someone with no wrestling experience and turn them into a world-class performer. So what they weight most heavily is, you know, does the, do they have the right telegenic appearance for us? Age-wise, are they going to have some longevity with the company, given how physically demanding it is on p- people's bodies? And can we coach this person? Because if we can do all that, right, if they satisfy all of those, well, making them into a pro wrestler is a no-brainer when you see what they're doing at the performance center. And then, of course, the fourth thing would be if they can wrestle, which is weird that that's not kind of first and foremost. Right. But that just speaks to their confidence. Like when I was down there, they had uh, the top ranked Greco-Roman wrestler from Serbia. And he had never even seen professional wrestling. He also didn't speak English, but he had the right look. He was the right age and they knew they could coach him like he was, you know. Olympic level wrestler. Um, but likewise, you know, they had somebody down there at the time who was, I don't know if she was a fitness model, but she had the right look, she was the right age, and she was exceptionally coachable. And she probably couldn't tell you who Hulk Hogan was. But they have enough great trainers and such a terrific system that they'll make her into a great wrestler. I guess that goes to the the confidence of what they you know what they can put out or what they can churn out, and there's no shortage of great coaches or even like yourself, there's no shortages of great guys that they can bring in to coach these people. So that's that's kind of a cool aspect that they do as well. Not only you, they can bring in somebody else from a different background, maybe maybe not even from you know from around here to go down there and train somebody. Well, yeah, and a, a funny anecdote about that. So. Uh, a a Wrestle Factory graduate who happens to spend some time down at the Performance Center since he relocated to Florida is Drew Gulak. And uh, Drew Drew most often pops up on 205 Live. But uh, for six months, from January to June, they had like a resident guest coach because Johnny Saint agreed to come to the Performance Center through his friend Robbie Brookside. And of course, Regal pushed very hard for that, as you can imagine. Uh, Johnny Saint, if you don't know, was most popular in the 1970s and 80s. And you, you'd be hard-pressed to find a better escapologist in all of wrestling. The master of the escape. He is a terrific counter-wrestler, is Johnny Saint. So Saint now, he's in his mid-70s, was coerced by Regal and Brookside to come and do this long tenure at the Performance Center from January to June, six months. 
But keep in mind, like the story I just related to you about a Greco-Roman wrestler from Serbia who'd never seen professional wrestling, and a fitness model who probably couldn't pick Hulk Hogan out of a police lineup. Do either of them have any clue who Johnny Saint is? No way. Absolutely not. And a lot of times, Drew would call me or send me a text and say, yeah, I was at the Performance Center and Johnny Saint was just standing around all day. He had open ring and nobody knew to get in the ring with him because 99% of the people there don't know who Johnny Saint is. And um, so sometimes, you know, the text back from Drew was, I got to spend all day in the ring with Johnny Saint. There was no one else that got in his ring, Um, which at once is funny and is also a little bit sad that they had this world-class talent down there and most people didn't know to avail themselves of his knowledge it's crazy uh, for from our standpoint anyway it's crazy to think that wow a legend like that a guy who's helped kind of you know william regal over long or robbie brookside it's kind of going unnoticed down there it's kind of crazy but i guess that just shows you that a lot of the people down there really just don't know their pro wrestling history but do you think that plays a factor into if they're really, really going to stick around for a long time? Because I feel like if you love the business and you know the history of the business, there's going to be some more longevity there. Yeah, that the, there's a lot to be said for that. Um, you know, all three of us, right, we're, we love professional wrestling. We are longtime fans of it. Even, even if the way it intersects with our lives, the way it intersects with the two of you might be a little different than the way it intersects with me. Nevertheless, we are all lovers of the same art form. Um, and so it is always a little strange to consider these people being given the opportunity to perform at the very highest level may have no knowledge or admiration for the craft whatsoever. But when you get down to it, uh, the WWE is busy making television content, and I don't know that their priority, especially in in years of late, I don't know that their priority is making great professional wrestling. They've got to produce these programs. The WWE Network has, what, 10 to 12 new hours of programming every week, in addition to which they deliver Monday Night Raw to USA, etc. They're under all these demands to fill all these hours of television, and they want to do it with people that have a telegenic look, that they meet a certain age requirement that they want, and they can be coached to deliver the type of stuff that WWE wants as their content. Like, they're an entertainment monolith, and their priorities are a little bit different. And I, I get why some people rail against that, right? Like, they feel like, oh, is this like a perversion? It's not, it's not pure, man. They're not just doing it for the art. No, of course not. Like, they're the, Vince McMahon will be the first one to call it the pro wrestling industry, the business. Like, he's a businessman, and he's got a product to put out and ship. Like, yeah, is he worried about whether or not he's making the best professional wrestling? No. He's worried about, am I satisfying my contracts to my sponsors and my television rights agreements? Am I putting out enough content to keep subscribers paying their nine ninety nine a month to the WWE Network? That's his priority. But that also speaks to the freedom that we have at the independent level. Because... To consider what we do, I think a lot of times to be part of the pro wrestling industry, I don't know about you, but most of the independent wrestling shows, it doesn't look like an industry to me. Um, You know, it takes on a very different form. And sometimes you can have a more pure approach to the art form at a smaller level. It's easy where we're at because it's very, very rare that you will ever come across a truly independent wrestling organization that is profitable, that runs like a profitable business. More times than not, they are money-loss leaders, our wrestling organizations. Believe me, I know this firsthand. So it's much easier, I think, at our level to put the art before the commerce. It's not possible when you're playing at Vince McMahon's level. That is a great, great point. And as I start to wind it down a bit here, because 
I feel like I could talk to either about the seven keys or about wrestling, about uh, your history or about even some music analogies all night long. And, you know, I don't want to do that to you. And I want to just uh, you know, focus here just on, on a few other key points that I wanted to ask you. And I know that, you know, we talked about it last time just a little bit. You had a great, great feud with Brian Danielson. A lot of people might know him as Daniel Bryan. And I may or may not have a couple of uh, tape trading DVDs and, and tapes of, of matches of you guys, whether it be in ROH in Germany. You just talk about how you're able to kind of connect and have such good chemistry with a guy like Daniel Bryan, Brian Danielson. Does it come naturally to you because you're so gifted in the ring or, or you know, or is, or is he playing a, a basically a, a big role in you guys having great matches? Uh, well, I appreciate the kind words. And I think the reason so many people are able to have such great chemistry with him is he's just an exceptionally friendly guy. It's just kind of the way that he meets you. And you get the sense immediately that he, too, is very passionate about professional wrestling. When I come across somebody like that, that makes me want to try harder. Like, um, I felt like during the Attitude Era, uh, there was a feeling coming from the top down into the independence that, like, it wasn't cool to know wrestling history. It wasn't cool to be really a big fan of wrestling. Like, hey, man, now you're in the business, right? Now you're no longer a fan. Don't be a dumb mark. Oh, what's that? You watch tapes from Japan? Are you a stupid mark? No. Now you're supposed to be in the business. And that whole, that philosophy, which came into the independence hard, was very repellent to me. I thought, no, I'm doing this because I love professional wrestling, and I love it in all its wacky forms and flavors. Like, I want to I eat it all. Like, is there another flavor down there, some weird canister at the bottom of the freezer? I want to eat that. What's that Titanes NL ring from Argentina? Can I eat that wrestling too? I want more of that. Um... So I'm always excited when I come across others that are the same way. And Brian, he's a tremendous fan of professional wrestling, too. That's why he's allowed that to become his life's work. And you just can't help but want to play when you come across somebody like that. If you come across someone that's very, like, closed off uh, or they're a little condescending about it, like, hey, man, you know, don't worry about it. Like, we'll just go out there in front of the dumb marks and do whatever. It'll be cool. and blah. Like, no, man, don't, don't hang me up with that outdated claptrap. Let's sit down. Let's put something together that's really awesome. What can we do to wow these people? Um, and Brian, I thought, always brought such enthusiasm to it. And he also has a great sense of humor, as you might know, that it, it, it just made it very easy to find chemistry with him. Yeah, there's a guy, a younger guy great wrestler he's wrestling all over the world whether it be united states england be becoming a pretty big star in japan everyone says he's kind of like the next dean o'brien becoming the next dean o'brien i always kind of saw him almost like the next mike quackenbush because he kind of does all these different styles yet very technically sound yet he could do the world of sports style and that's a zach saber jr what are your thoughts on him i know you've wrestled him before and worked with him before but what are your thoughts on uh, zach saber uh i love zach uh, he is a dear friend and when I toured Europe regularly, he was still a teenager. More times than I remember, he and I were the guys that ended up at the cafe together late at night or some late night diner in Germany or showing up bedraggled with bloodshot eyes at an airport terminal to fly home in the morning. And uh, he would play a Paul Weller album for me and I would play a They Might Be Giants album for him. And... Uh, I've known him for a very long time. I feel like I've known him since he was a kid, and that makes me feel old saying it out loud. Um, I think the world of Zach. He is, uh, he's a tremendous guy away from the ring, and in the ring, I think he is of the very highest caliber. And I did, uh, this year, I had the chance to wrestle him twice. 
And one of them just happened to be by circumstance. A wrestler was injured. Uh, I was not meant to wrestle Zack Sabre Jr. In fact, I, I was not planning to have a match at all upcoming. And uh, I, I emailed Zack and I said, look, the guy you were meant to be wrestling is hurt. Um, if you have a suggestion for somebody else, you know, obviously we want to honor your booking. The audience is looking forward to having you. Who would you want to wrestle? And he said, you know, all these years we've known each other, you and I never had a chance to do the dance together in the ring. And, uh, you know, based on how my contract status might be changing later in the year, we may never get another chance to do it. So would you do me the honor? Could we do the dance? And we did. Uh, And then just a few months later, uh, to pay tribute to our mutual friend, Johnny Kidd, uh, we uh, we did the dance one more time at the tournament named for him, the Johnny Kidd Invitational. Um, I just have a world of respect for Zach uh, in the ring and out. Great wrestler, obviously just tremendous what he's been able to do. Obviously, he made a little pit stop in WWE. He's dominating New Japan. He's doing great in PWG. Evolve. Definitely, he's he's great. He's, he's just all over the place. Do you think that kind of guy is the kind of guy that breeds the better professional wrestler, meaning that they're more of a world traveler? As far as, you know, they went to Japan, they went to Mexico, kind of like you did. You, you go everywhere and you train. Do you think that is, is kind of a key into becoming a better professional wrestler? Yep, I think it absolutely is. And it's not unlike, well, pull it out of wrestling for a moment, uh, just about being a good citizen of the world. Um, if you never get out of Biloxi, Mississippi... How much, you know, how much of the world could you possibly know? Um, you're only experiencing it, you know, from Biloxi looking out. Um, you want, I, I, I don't know why you wouldn't, but I, I think it's an aspiration most people should have, like to travel, experience other cultures, see what else is out there, you know? Um, what are the things that maybe you don't see in Biloxi, but you do see in Madrid? Um, to get out there a little bit and become a good citizen of the world, this, this also maps neatly over being a better professional wrestler. You got to get out there. Get out of your comfort zone a little bit. Have a little bit of culture shock. Grow up a little bit on the road. Learn those things. And a couple of guys that uh, I really admired, uh, and I'm going to I'll name them, Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko, something that I took away watching them by the time they got to ECW. These were guys who had done their time in Japan. They had done their time in Mexico. They had done their time in Europe and all over the American circuit before they ever got the opportunity to do it at the ECW arena. And to me, that became a template. These guys are so accomplished. And I was just such a tremendous admirer of the series of matches Guerrero and Malenko had in ECW. And I thought, if I could be 1% as good as either one of those dudes, that's worth doing. And here's the blueprint. They went here, and they learned from this guy. And they went here, and they learned from that guy. And they, they went as many different places as they possibly could and learned from as many people as they possibly could just to get to that bingo hall in Philly. And if, if that's not a blueprint, I don't know what is. So that was very important to me. And I don't know that it is as important anymore. Um, like, I'm, I always kind of marvel at, you know, people feel increasingly like, well, yeah, you know, I haven't gone there, there, and there, and I haven't learned from this guy, that guy, or the other guy. But, you know, I am getting 100 likes per social media message. And I think, man, I don't know that that's the currency of a professional wrestler. Those two guys definitely helped ECW at a time when they needed to get a, a spotlight off of just that hardcore uh, action. But... What you said there about the uh, the social media brings it back to what we were talking about before. And maybe not all the likes in the world are going to make you a great professional wrestler, but it's about all the X factors and a possible seven keys 
that can help you become a better one. And that's where I want to bring it back to the book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, a book for fellow pro wrestlers. Mike, give us one last push for this book, why the wrestlers should read it, and why, if you're a fan and you want to learn a little bit more, you should pick this bad boy up as well. Well, we're all faced with this challenge. Modern audiences are changing constantly, but our art form changes very, very slowly. It's time to grab that bull by the horns and modernize. And I've done my very best to boil this down into seven concise points in my book, Seven Keys to Becoming a Better Performer, a book that I've written for fellow professional wrestlers. It's available right now on Amazon.com. You can have a digital copy delivered to your mobile device in seconds through the Kindle store, or you can have a print copy. Amazon will print one for you and mail it to you. If you got that Amazon Prime, it'll probably be on your doorstep tomorrow. And it's a quick read. You'll be able to put it down fast. And if you're looking for more insight into the way I tackle those topics and the tone of the book, please listen to my podcast. It's absolutely free, and it comes out every Thursday. It's called Kayfabe 2.0. I'm really grateful that you guys had me on and for allowing me so much time to talk about this stuff. Uh, I'm really passionate about this, and I don't get to talk about it enough, at least not outside of the seminars that I do, which, of course, are, you know, they're private functions. They're closed to the public. So thanks for giving me a forum to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. I feel like we were in on that seminar right now. I feel like we had our own private uh, viewing of what one of those seminars is like. And since John was at the Wrestle Factory, he has talked about that many, many times and referenced it many, many times. So it's good to know that he got to learn from the master. And anytime we can have you on and pick your brain, it's always a ton of fun. And a little funny anecdote there about Amazon, I'm sure if somebody clicks purchase, uh, and they want that physical copy at the beginning of the interview, there's a good chance you might have it by the end with how fast that service really is. Mm-hmm. So all the best to you if you choose to do that. So, Mike, we really appreciate you coming on, and we'd love to have you on again in the future, hopefully talking about some Chikara, which we didn't even get a chance to dig <laughs> into, but we'll leave that for another date. So thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.